Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 95 of Haunted Muse, and it features the next installment of my second novel, The Wolf You Feed, which is set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. Okay, so here we go. The Wolf You Feed. From the Journal of Frontier Teacher May Ulrich, October 3rd, 1858. I've given up on going to church altogether. Every time I attempt, it's like this impenetrable phalanx of hoop skirts prevents me from entering. After nearly three months in town, I still can't even find a pew to sit in without someone pushing me to move along elsewhere. It's almost comical, this game of musical chairs they play in which I'm always the odd woman out, even though this morning I'd redoubled my efforts at giving all appearances of being a model citizen in hopes of getting into good graces with the mothers of town. However, the lead curtain of their unspoken prejudice seems to have been drawn against me forever. Nevertheless, when I returned back to the schoolhouse this morning, after failing to hear the sermon even, because I refused to tolerate sitting on the porch again like a naughty child, Cotter was waiting for me. We had spoken about the prospect of my attending the meeting of their intertribal council, which was this evening. It was in support of that visit that I had tried this morning, one last time, to gain an audience with the mothers of my potential students. I had hoped to bring some sort of olive branch to the tribal council meeting as an overture of goodwill. Alas, it was to no avail, as usual. Well, I can't guarantee the elders will welcome you with open arms either, explained Carter as we rode out to the Ute village. But since I'm bringing you, I can guarantee that you'll at least have a seat in the circle and be allowed to speak your piece. Turns out, Carter was right. The elders' council began at dusk, after an excellent meal of smoked buffalo, mashed sweet potatoes, corn with spicy peppers, and fry bread. As we milled about, I could tell from the differences in their dress and speech that members of several different tribes were present. The fact that my remaining youth students recognized me and rushed up to chatter excitedly about why I was there helped to defrost a bit of the conversational chill with which the meal had begun. Some of their mothers even came up to introduce themselves, with the help of Chenua and Nasha, who were also there. It was really helpful, considering that Carter split off for me to go sit with some men as soon as we arrived, and I didn't see him again until the council convened. Once we'd settled down into the council meeting itself, I immediately noticed the difference in the way that business was conducted, in comparison to the practices of the Auraria Town Council and others in Maine that I had attended in my other life. Although one youngish-looking man opened the discussion, it wasn't readily apparent which one of them was in charge. I recognized Gad, sitting by Nasha, but none of the others. Cotter, who by this time was translating bits and pieces for me in whispers, explained that the preferred method was for speaking authority to travel around the circle of elders once so that everyone had a chance to voice their concerns, and then there would be a sort of group discussion by everyone regarding what was to be done. When my time came to speak in the circle, I told them about the idea Carter and I were considering, that I would come to live with them in the Ute village to teach English to their children with their permission, 
Some of them, I could tell, understood my request, but others had to wait for Carter to retranslate the message. He did this very adeptly in youth, some words of which I could recognize by now, and into others that I did not, but I suppose were probably Arapaho and Navajo. Since Nasha spoke English, Pawnee wasn't necessary. After Carter finished, I could tell that she was adding something quickly in the other languages, besides what I had said. She's telling them that you have the support of her and the other women of her group, Carter whispered in my ear. Her endorsement carries a lot of weight around here. Every man in these tribes is scared to death of her. Glancing at the expressions on the faces of the other men in the circle as Nasha was speaking, I could tell that Carter was right. They were hanging on Nasha's every word, nodding almost in unison. What she had told me about the greatest benefit of what she had become was true. Their attention was rapt, and their fear of her judgment palpable. None of the other women who spoke in the council garnered so much deference. Many other matters were discussed as the initial round of talks went around the circle. Carter continued to narrate the highlights to me at the conclusion of each elder's remarks. Most of them were worried about the failed raid on the Ute village and the fact that no retaliatory action had been taken yet by Russell or any of Auraria's men. They all knew it was coming, but none of the intelligence they'd attempted to gain, either through direct contact or spying, had given them any clues. This made them nervous. Of secondary concern were the negotiations about how to properly divide the proceeds from the mines, which had completely stalled in recent weeks. I could feel that tensions were mounting as Carter continuously had to answer questions directed to him out of turn in the circle, as the intensity of the debate among some of the elders grew more heated. Finally, the one who had opened the council pointed at me, then at Nasha, and without knowing precisely what words he spoke, I could tell that he was insisting both of us leave, which we did. Once we were outside, I must have looked disturbed because Nasha said, Don't worry. It always gets like that toward the end of the council. Most of the elders feel as if they have to put up a show of arguing against any point that wasn't theirs to begin with so that they can concede in the end without looking like they've lost face. A lot of the back and forth is just posturing, each of them flexing their power by pushing against one another. Nasha shrugged with indifference. Could be as big as this mining deal, or as small as arranging which tribe will host the next council meeting. It doesn't matter. They're all very proud, and they like to go back to their people with the ability to talk and say that they've won points that mattered. It's how they hold on to their people's respect. We waited for another hour or so, and I could hear the volume and pace of their speeches continue to grow louder and faster, until at last I recognized both Gad and Carter calling out something that sounded like, several times, which I took to mean something like stop or listen, because everything got quieter. Then each said something else quickly, and all was silent. When the talking began again, only the first man, whom I had come to think of as the moderator of it all, spoke for a long time. They're getting ready to vote, said Nasha. And then, sure enough, I could hear again what I took to be the A's and nays of whatever they were voting on in the circle. Several minutes later, they all filed out of the Hogan, chatting amongst themselves as usual. As they passed by me, a few of them gave me a slow nod, saying something that sounded like, Yatia, and Osio, which I interpreted, along with their gestures, to indicate, 
welcome. Congratulations, said Calder, smiling and more relaxed than I had seen him in a long time. You've been officially invited to come to the Ute Village and tutor the Utes of all ages whenever you're ready. Not just the children. A lot of the adults want to learn, too. Was it that much of a struggle? I asked, worried that the heated debate which I had overheard indicated resistance similar to what I experienced in Auraria. Nah, replied Calder. Biggest concern about you was who would get to have you first. The Navajo would like for you to consider coming down to their village near Bent's Fort, too, as soon as possible. They figure the gold rush will be down there next, and they want everyone to be prepared to negotiate for themselves. I told them that you could both stay with us in one of the apartments above the saloon, said Gad. We agreed that you'd stay where you are through the winter to teach as much as you could here, and then, if you're still willing, move on to work with the Navajo after the spring thaw. Then we'll see what happens next. The Arapaho and Apache were also interested, but since the next tribe's turn will be during the summer months when everyone is less stationary, we decided to wait and decide that at a later time, once everyone knows what the world is going to look like after this new gold rush hits. I was slightly taken aback that so much had been decided about my fate without my even being in the room. I had expected a lot of talking, but for things to move more slowly, like everything else in my educational life. But what about the school in Auraria? What will I tell the Institute back in Hartford? Cotter took my hand, pulling me close to his side. As I told you before, you can take time to figure that out and start whenever you're ready. And there are two apartments over Gad's place, so you can have one to yourself or one with me. He paused and then added, if you are interested in having me, that is. I'm certain that I stammered around in some dreadfully awkward way before I finally replied that, yes, I was interested in having him, because by the time I got around to it, Carter looked pale, and Gad was chuckling at him. Close call, my friend, he said, slapping Carter on the back. Easier to sell her on living, leaving civilization than on taking you on. After we'd both recovered from these revelations, Nasha was impatient to know what we had decided about the mining negotiations, too, or what was being done in preparation for the counterattack, which everyone knew was inevitable. Ore wants us to keep waiting and be patient, replied Gad. Nasha scowled at him disapprovingly as he continued. And I think he's right. We have absolutely nothing to gain by continuing to stir up hostility with Russell and his men. If we take up our time and let the next wave of miners rush in in the spring, they'll get rid of Russell for us. That will save us the blame, and it's likely that at least some among this next group will be more reasonable and willing to strike a deal. Ora is going to be the new chief, without question. His marriage to Chipeta in the spring will only solidify the alliances among tribes, and all of the elders support him. As for retaliation, Russell should know that he has neither the moral justification for it nor the men to support it. Too many of them have already died. Many of the Cherokee that he brought out here have already left, hoping to beat the winter back home to Georgia. All Russell can do is hunker down in Auraria and wait and try to cheat any newcomers as they arrive. His time as the king of the territory is soon coming to an end, whether he likes it or not. Nasha shook her head in disgust. Russell's not hunkering down. He's coiling up like a snake. And being a snake, he'll strike 
at the weakest spot when he feels cornered. To think that he won't is our greatest weakness. What do you think, Carter? He's your uncle. He left you to die in the desert. You should know more than anyone what he's capable of. Carter dropped my hand and crossed his arms defensively to Nasha. There was a flash of something like electricity between them. Of course I do, but the fact is I believe what the council decided is true. No matter how wicked his intentions might be, Uncle Russell knows that a counterattack is futile right now. He has, what, fewer than a dozen men left? And all of his other supporters are just a bunch of townspeople too scared to say boo to a ghost, much less take up arms against people whom they perceive to be bloodthirsty savages? How much of a threat could they be? You'd be surprised, I said. Nasha fixed her owl-like gaze upon me. What men are capable of when they feel cornered. I wouldn't put anything past him, or most of the rest of them either. There's something uncanny about those people, something very cold and secretive. I felt it ever since I learned about how quiet they kept the murder of Jonah's mother. I don't know what it is, but I agree with Nasha. They're capable of anything. Listen to these women, said Gad, who had disappeared when Nasha began talking and returned with a bottle of whiskey and a handful of tin mugs. He popped the cork on the bottle and poured each of us a draught. Always worrying about something. Let's enjoy what we've decided tonight. May is becoming one of us. He wiggled his mug in front of me, suggesting a toast, and he, Carter, and I clinked them together. Not Nasha, though. She looked down into her mug as if it were filled with worms. That's the problem with all of you, Nasha said, drinking it down and dropping her mug into the dust. She gazed up at us. Her eyes gleamed like liquid mercury. None of you remember anything. I have the opposite problem. The problem with me is that I remember everything. This is the end of May Ulrich's October 3rd journal entry. Be sure to tune in next time to The Wolf You Feed here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.